Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, coming to you today as usual from Jungenbar country, and this is Supply Circles, the podcast that asks the question each fortnight, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we are implementing the challenges of digitalization, decarbonisation and ongoing disruptions. Today, I want to dive into the story of electric vehicles in your business. This is a story of the sustainable supply chains of the future. It's a story of change, of current confusion, of coming regulations for your business. It's a story of digitalisation, of disruption, and of course, the decarbonisation of your business and our economy. To help me unpack the supply chain, my story of electric vehicles in your business. My guest today is Ross Durango, the Head of Energy and Infrastructure at the Electric Vehicles Council of Australia. So hello, Ross. Welcome to the show. G'day, James. Pleased to be on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to talk about this topic. It's a big one. But let's start at the beginning. Now, Ross, one of the great joys of life is heading into the mountains on an early Sunday morning, a thumping, powerful V8, throwing me up the mountain road, or even better, in a powerful twin-turbo four or supercharged six, catapulting up the range, radio pumping, wide tyres gripping the car, sliding under control through winding mountain roads, great fun, laughing, pumping, having a huge amount of enjoyment. Are you going to ruin my fun? Are we going to be driving boring, slow, sluggish vehicles where pure driving pleasure is a thing of the past? So I'd welcome anyone who's concerned about that to go test drive an electric vehicle. The cure to those worries about will this be, absolutely. The cure to this question of will it be fun to drive is go drive one. You almost certainly will not be disappointed. If your work involves flying and renting a vehicle, you can rent EVs from an airport. You can talk to your local car dealership about borrowing one and taking it out. The EVs that are in market now routinely have better off-the-line performance than their petrol equivalents. Uh, you get full torque at zero speed. And to your point around decarbonisation, they're part of solving the environmental challenges that we have to solve. So is that old story of test drive? Fair enough. That's that right. Take it, take it out and drive it. If you're not sure, try it. There's a question I get a lot from, uh, from my mates who love their, their, electric, their internal combustion engine cars. And I always tell them of the Ford F-150 Lightning. The Ford F-150 is the classic iconic gas guzzler from the US. It's the highest selling truck or car in America of all time. Uh, and it was big, powerful, manly, all-American, ubiquitous. But when it went fully electric, the F-150 Lightning, the lovers of the gas guzzler discovered it was actually a better car. Engines were not a huge lump of steel at the front of the car. The, the, power, the, the weight was in the middle of the car, which meant that it didn't slide out unexpectedly. And of course, when you took it off-road on the weekends, so it was a great tradies car during the week, but when you took it off-road during the weekend, it handled much better and the power was right there under your feet. In fact, the, the F-150 Lightning sold out within a couple of minutes, uh, two years of production in a couple of minutes. So I, I think your point's supported. The uh, electric vehicles can be as much fun as ICEs. Absolutely. And from that point of practicality, right? So an F-150 is a vehicle routinely used by the trade. Uh, it's not necessarily a vehicle that's all about the pleasure of driving. It's about performing a job. The ability of an electric vehicle of that type to support running equipment at the worksite to run a table saw, to run a welder, to run reasonably chunky electrical equipment. In the event that you're in a remote location to power your house from the vehicle for days at a time. These are selling points that Ford hit on really, really hard when they're pitching that vehicle and it works. Uh, to your point, their challenge isn't do people want to buy it, their challenge is keeping manufacturing volumes up to demand. Uh, the reason you can't buy an F-150 Lightning in Australia yet is that 100% of their market manufacturing is devoted to other markets than ours. It must be a funny conversation in parts of America where these big lovers of the gas guys like with the big Ford logo on their T-shirts are saying, no, mine's an electric vehicle. It's great. It's fantastic. It's a whole new world for us here in, in Australia. And this idea that electric vehicles are better is, is now backed up by a lot of data, isn't it? Because there's a lot of vehicles, uh, EVs, electric vehicles in the world now. They've been around for a while, but they, they're selling quickly. 
Yeah, that's right. So we're now at a point where there is literally tens of millions of electric vehicles getting around on global roads. Uh, we're looking at something like 180,000 electric vehicles on Australian roads by the end of the year. We're no longer talking about something that's wow. fringe or unusual. Uh, we're at a point already where about one car in 12 in Australia being sold as electric. Uh, and it has been increasing 100% year on year for the last three years. One of the interesting things is uh, I was reading uh, stats before uh, that where the, the Tesla make up 57% of electric vehicle sales in Australia, which is not surprising. But the second highest selling one is BYD, which is a Chinese um, mark, followed by Volvo, MG, Mercedes, Polestar, Hyundai, BMW and Kia. There's still a lot of the the old marks making cars, but then now they're making electric vehicles. But the largest two, Tesla and BYD, are new, what you'd call new manufacturers. Do you think this is the way of the future that we will see a non-traditional manufacturers take over? I think what we've seen there is the new entrance to the market uh, taking advantage of the fact that, that shifting to a new drivetrain technology in high volume manufacturing takes time. It's not something that can be done immediately. So every significant global automaker is currently spending billions of dollars on the journey to electrification, but it is a journey that doesn't happen instantly. It takes years to take a car from the drawing board to a production model. In terms of which car makers will dominate the market in future, we've got lots of car makers as members of the Electric Vehicle Council, so it wouldn't be appropriate for me to pick favourites. But what I'd observe <laughs> is that there's good, good, many, good many... No, not at all. But what I'd observe is that there's many car makers bringing electric, vehicle mar electric vehicles to market globally, and we're expecting more range to choose from in Australia over the next few years. Let's come back to what the cars are like, but we, we should introduce the Electric Council Vehicle. Oh, the Electric Vehicle Council. What is that? What's that all about? So the Electric Vehicle Council is an industry peak body. Uh, we're a membership organisation comprised of car makers, energy networks, charging equipment manufacturers, fleet operators, banks, uh, all manner of corporates who see that the future involves the electrification of road transport and believe they have a part to play in it. Uh, we've recently ticked over 100 members. The membership rolls on our website. It's publicly visible. Uh, if you're a listener and you're a corporate involved in the EV space and you want to talk about membership, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, but our role is really around policy and advocacy with government, so getting the right policies in place to accelerate the uptake of EVs. We work in uh, industry development, so standards, regulations, codes, where they need to be modified or shift in order to enable the uptake of EVs. And finally, market facilitation. Uh, no one member of ours can do the whole thing themselves. This transition to electrified road transport is going to involve a really wide variety of players. So introducing those players to each other and fostering the discussions is a big part of what we do as well. You mentioned policy. Is there, are the policies in place to help electric vehicles come into Australia or is there still a lot of work to be done? So we publish our State of EVs report on an annual basis and a recap in between times. Uh, that can be downloaded from our website. It talks about the sorts of policies that are needed without diving right into the detail of all the policy changes that might be required. The big one currently is fuel efficiency standards. Uh, Australia is one of only two developed countries, us and Russia, that don't have fuel efficiency standards in place that govern what vehicles come to market. Uh, and I guess if we look at the total global market, 85% of the world's automotive market is subject to fuel efficiency standards. We're part of the 15% that's not. Uh, and that's fundamentally the reason that we don't get as many EVs allocated to our market as Australians want to buy. Uh, this is an active piece of work, the federal government right now. We're, uh, we're expecting to see movement on this in the relatively near term. They released a draft. Did I see somewhere where there is a draft stand or a fuel efficiency suggested paper out? That's right. As I said, this is an active area of work by the federal government. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm confident mm -hmm. that we will see a fuel efficiency standard. The questions are going to be exactly what is the detailed design of that standard and what are the implementation timelines? You, you also mentioned standards because this is a big issue. We had, we had uh, Lucy from Standards Australia or a member of Centers Australia on the podcast a couple 
uh, a couple of episodes ago, where we were talking about the need for when you bring out new products, making sure that we can trust them. <laughs> and when you're talking about you know electric vehicles or new energy vehicles, people are worried about the safety of them. Where are we with standards? Is the world ready for it? For it? Are we ready for it? How standards looking? Yeah, so vehicles are subject to Australian design rules. We have um, stringent requirements, as we should, around vehicle safety. Uh, electric vehicles brought to market, uh, typically ANCAP 5, just like most other modern cars you might buy. Uh, one of the things that people are often mm -hmm. concerned about because it's in the news is fire safety around EVs. That's been relatively publicly covered. Uh, yeah, the yeah. best data available is that EVs catch fire at about 1 20th of the rate of petrol and diesel vehicles. Uh, that's based out of some work done in Denmark just recently. Uh, so while EV fires, when they happen, make the news, they don't happen all that often. Uh, and when they happen in Australia, the traditional techniques of putting water on them works to put them out. Uh, so there's some need to make sure that our firefighters are appropriately trained and equipped, but it's not a reason not to shift to an electric car. I always like to reverse the, reverse the, the thought and say, imagine if we were bringing out internal combustion engines today. And we said to you, we want you to drive around with 60 litres of highly inflammable liquid in, the, in your boot. Uh, there would be an uproar. There would be. Well, I think if you look back to the start of when internal combustion engines were brought in, anyone who's interested in a history lesson, go look up red flag laws, right? When motor vehicles first came into the UK, there was a requirement that a person uh, yeah. walk in front of the vehicle waving a red flag for the, for the protection <laughs> of the motorists and the, of the walkers, the pedestrians and the people riding horses. Uh, whenever something new comes in, there's always someone ready to say, this is dangerous and we shouldn't do it. I drive a BMW and my friends reckon that I should have someone waving a red flag in front of me saying, here's a BMW driver who doesn't use his indicators. I, I don't know where that, that joke came from, but it's been around for 10 years that, you know, if, if you think you have a useless job, imagine the person putting indicators on a BMW, you know, <laughs> steering <laughs> shaft. I'll, I'll, but, I'll, I'll refrain from commenting on BMWs or your personal driving, James. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very, you know, I'm good with my indicators. I just get it wrong on the column if I've been driving a hire car <laughs> been away. I, I, oh, I yeah. the wrong side, turn the wipers on. So switching back and forth between my car what you, and my car, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I sometimes see a car all of a sudden turn its poppers on for no reason. I think oh, it's a European car and they forgot. What about you? What do you do for a living? You're in charge of energy and infrastructure at the EV Council. What's that cover? Yeah, that's right. So within the Electric Vehicle Council, as I said, an industry peak body, my role is heading up energy and infrastructure. So I work on uh, the things that are necessary in order that people are going to be able to charge these cars. That covers engagements with energy networks. It covers working with energy market bodies, as I said, standards, codes, regulations relating to charging equipment. Uh, I get involved in built environment stuff. So work with the Australian Building Codes Board on National Construction Code. Uh, essentially anywhere where there is uh, a touch point between the vehicles and the energy system that needs attention from people like us, that's the sort of work that I do. And does that make you a lawyer or something? What was your background? Background is engineering. So I've been two years at the Electric Vehicle Council. Uh, prior to that, I was 13 years at NHP, which is a manufacturer of electrical equipment, an AI group member. Uh, yeah, before yeah, that, sure. I was yeah. teaching robotics engineering at Deakin Uni down in Geelong. Oh, wow. That's a nice, uh, varied uh, engineering career. Well, yeah, it's good yeah. in the EV, EV Council then with that kind of back, that background. Yeah. yeah, an engineering background. I like to think I'm a reasonable fit for the job. I think that sounds exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the why uh, and, and uh, in, in terms of business, not just in our own public cars, but why are we going to electric vehicles instead of internal combustion engines? Just paint the picture for me as to why. Sure. So approximately 20% of our CO2 emissions come from the transport sector. Uh, about 30% of our emissions, it is high, yeah, so it's a lot. About 30% of our emissions come from electricity generation, the coal and the gas that we burn to make the electrons. We are shifting the electricity sector towards renewables, wind, solar, pumped hydro, backed by batteries, those sorts of technologies are going to cover off over time the 30% that comes from the electricity sector. 
shifting the 20% in the transport sector to electric in combination with the 30% in the electricity sector lets us take out half of our national emissions profile. That's the fundamental reason we're doing it. It's about CO2 emissions and climate change. Along the way, though, there's other benefits. So if we consider what the air quality in our cities looks like and the benefit of shifting to electric by comparison to breathing diesel fumes, there is a huge health advantage to be had measured in thousands and thousands of lives per annum around shifting from petrol and diesel combustion to electricity for traction power. Uh, and then at a more uh, budgetary and national strategic outlook, we import the vast majority of our petrol and diesel fuel for road transport. Uh, this comes from other countries rather than being fuel that we generate here, creating Australian jobs and creating Australian wealth. So there's a balance of payments aspect to this shift. There's other advantages to it too, though, from a business point of view. An electric vehicle is a way lot cheaper to, uh, to operate. Uh, you know, you don't have exhaust pipes, you don't have exhaust mufflers, you don't have um, spark plugs or leads or radiators. There's a whole bunch of stuff you don't have. In fact, uh, I've said on this podcast before that uh, in Seattle, the PepsiCo Corporation said that they run a lot of trucks delivering, uh, um, I think they run 20,000 trucks a day on the on the, the West Coast delivering Pepsi and Pepsi cans or whatever. And they estimated that they save half an hour a day uh, from refueling in the middle of the day because they've got to refuel the, uh, the, the trucks. So that's uh, 10,000 hours, 50,000 hours a week that they're saving just by moving to electric vehicles because they can have enough power charged up overnight to deliver during the day. That's a massive saving. And then there's all the road train type, or, you know, all the engine type stuff that you've got to keep replacing. The cost of operating electric vehicles is, it would appear, cheaper. Have you seen any work on that? Is it is it substantially cheaper or is the overall cost of changing over, still prohibitive for prohibitive. Yeah, so I think there's the operating cost in fuel, right, which is a, a clear and significant saving. If you look at the cost of running a typical petrol vehicle at seven litres per hundred and two bucks per litre, you're looking at something like $14 per hundred Ks in fuel. Electric vehicles, if you're able to buy the electricity off peak, are more like one or two dollars per hundred kilometres compared to 14. So there's a huge fuel cost saving for the person operating the vehicle. Around maintenance, I'll use my wife's Polestar as an example. Uh, we took delivery of that vehicle in February and we asked about the service plan. The service plan is please bring it back in two years or 30,000 kilometres so that we can change the air filter. Now, anyone who's bought a petrol or diesel vehicle and has inquired <laughs> about the service plan, it's a little bit more involved than bring it back at 30,000 Ks for an air filter change. Uh, and that goes straight to your point about what's actually involved in the powertrain of these vehicles. The electric vehicle powertrain just doesn't have that many moving parts. There's not that much in it, so there isn't as much maintenance work required. Uh, to your point around timing of fueling and charging and how those compare with each other, someone operating an electric vehicle fleet will usually be able to make arrangements so that those vehicles are recharging at a time when they would ordinarily be sitting still anyway. So we know that a lot of drivers recharge their cars while the car is sitting in the driveway during a sunny day and was otherwise not going anywhere because it's drawing the energy straight from the solar panels on the roof, which is cheap and environmentally friendly. We know a lot of other drivers recharge their cars overnight while they're sleeping. Uh, people ask me, how long does it take to charge the electric car? It takes about 10 seconds. It's five seconds to plug it in and five seconds to unplug it. And the time in between, I don't care about because I'm sleeping. Yeah, I mean, this is the point, isn't it? That the, the electric vehicle is not just an internal combustion engine vehicle with a different different motor. It's a different vehicle altogether, as you said before. The, the F-150 Lightning has a front, a, front, a front truck, which is full of power points that you can plug your power tools into and recharge them while you're driving around or plug your generator in while you're at the site. And the recharging of the of cars in the future will be like the recharging of your phone. You plug it in at night and the, the car will say it'll be fully charged in seven hours, 60 minutes or 60 seconds uh, because, um, um, you know, we've worked out that you're not going to use the car. We know you don't use the car over this period generally, so we'll just slow charge it. It's a different way of looking at mobility, isn't it? It's just completely different from running a uh, 1890s technology type vehicle. 
Yeah, absolutely. When considering when to charge the car, right, we recommend that people, where possible, charge their car during the middle of the day. Uh, that's when the electricity is at its least carbon intensive because of the amount of solar we've deployed so far. So if it's practical for the driver to charge during the middle of the day, that's good for the environment and good for their hip pocket. Uh, if they can't charge in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night off peak is the best time. So you'll find lots and lots of retail offers out there that'll make electricity cheap from midnight to 6 a.m. or thereabouts. Uh, and then if they absolutely have to charge the car at peak time, okay, it's possible to do it, but it doesn't deliver the sorts of environmental and wealth benefits that charging at a better time of day can. Same thing applies to business fleets. Uh, if you are converting a depot from running petrol or diesel vehicles to running electric, consideration should be given to the timing about when these vehicles are going to recharge. Because if you try and do a direct transition uh, and assume that you're going to recharge them in exactly the same way that you refuel a petrol vehicle, the size of electrical connection you might need will be excessive. If you do better planning around these vehicles are stationary at this depot for six or eight hours, the cost associated with the transition will be far less. Uh, there's a lot of work that has been done in this domain locally and globally. Does this mean that we'll have to change the way we, we structure our factories and our businesses in the, in the future? So I'd, I'd observe that the vehicles are providing a transport function that is necessary to the smooth operation of our society. Uh, if we were to say that the shift to EVs would mean that we would need to reorganise our lives, that would actually be a problem. What we are looking for is a future where the shift to EVs can be accommodated without massive disruptions. So we don't want to see, for example, a future where uh, the shift to EVs requires an excessive and massive build-out of electricity infrastructure. Some build-out, some augmentation is going to be needed. We're going to be shifting 50 billion litres of liquid fuel each year to a 40% increase in electrical energy each year. That doesn't come without some upgrade work, but managing the way in which sure. we do the charging will enable us to do it most cost effectively and with minimal business impact. Your point about this uh, this fuel every year is one that we should keep in mind. I, as I say, like you know, as a supply chain specialist, I like to reverse the question and think about what it means on the opposite. And again, if I said to you, okay, what we're going to do in the future is we're going to go to the furthest points of the earth. We're going to go into the most contested lands on, on earth, um, uh, to the driest lands or to the deepest parts of the ocean and get some some uh, oil, which we'll convert using a very messy process into fuel. We'll transport it across the world in ships uh, put it into service stations that you'll have to go to to fill up and pay a variable price the whole time, and you burn it once. We have to keep doing it day after day after day. We have to keep this this whole supply chain going just to keep our cars going. You'd say that makes sense. That doesn't make sense. That's a ridiculous concept. <laughs> it's a ridiculous yeah, yeah. concept. And I, I'd like to think uh, that business managers are starting to think and say, hang on, these cars are cheaper to run, they're more efficient, the system is better. It's, I'm not subject to variable fuel. Is that the sort of conversations that you're hearing or are you still getting a lot of pushback in Australia about the move to EVs? My business I'm talking about. Sure. So that point around uh, the question of is it reasonable to continue drawing all this oil out of the ground and using it to run our cars, I'd compare that ongoing extraction of oil to the alternative in electric, which is you put up some solar panels, you put up some wind turbines, you use an existing electricity network and all of the wealth that is created stays here because it's energy generation assets that are in our country and it's clean. It doesn't require that we then combust that material in our cities and breathe the products of it. If you compare these two approaches, one clearly makes much, much more sense than the other. Uh, the incumbent one is just what we've all grown up with. It's what we're accustomed to and what we are in the process of moving away from. In terms of business shifting to EV, uh, federal government has done some work around FBT exemptions for EV, which will make it easier. That'll smooth the financial pathway. But a lot of it's simply inertia. Uh, we're at a point where what the fleet operators and fleet managers know is petrol and diesel vehicles. And getting people to make the move requires effort. It requires things to be done 
maybe a little bit differently tomorrow than they were done today. And that takes time. Uh, as an example, the fleet manager today doesn't need to think about infrastructure for refueling the cars. That piece is outsourced. You give the person a fuel card and off they go. The fleet manager of tomorrow, if EV charging at the workplaces inspect is required, needs to talk to the people in the property team and work out how to do EV charging in the workplace. So it doesn't come with no investment. And that work uh, is part of what causes some organizations to be slower to make the move than others. I was going to ask you this later, but I'll, I'll ask it now. Uh, a friend of mine runs some uh, significant shopping centers around Australia, uh, and he tells me it's prohibitive to put uh, a lot of charging stations into the car parks. They can put two or three, but the cost is just prohibitive to do it on a large scale. I live in a, a, a large apartment block on the on the Gold Coast, and where our body corp is looking at the cost of you know replacing um, or putting in charges into just about every every spot. Big cost involved. Big cost involved. What's the answer here? So different answers in different building types. Uh, sure. If I look at an apartment complex, older apartment complexes where the energy supply to the building is largely gas with a little bit of electricity are likely to need non-trivial electrical upgrades to support a future where everyone has an electric car. Because the supply of electricity to a building, I said non-trivial. That's right. It will cost a <laughs> bit of money to take a building that was originally designed to have most of its energy supply being gas and shift it to a future where it's supporting EV charging in the car parking environment. More recent apartment buildings, though, that have been built after things like air conditioning in every dwelling became more common, will have an electrical supply that is sized to support that peak demand on a hot day. And that size of electrical supply will be adequate to support all of the EV charging that needs to happen in the building, providing that EV charging happens off peak. So the work in most established apartment buildings will be around run copper from the main switchboard down into the car parking area, run either a trunk line or a distribution board and support the installation of EV charges. And then those will be managed so that they don't operate at peak time. That won't be a problem for the driver. The driver will get home, plug in, and the vehicle will be full in the morning. But what it will mean is that you won't need to upgrade the supply to the building and then pay for a big transformer and a big new main switchboard. It doesn't mean it'll come without work. The Onus Corporation will still need to engage an export, will still need to do some electrical work, which will become a shared expense. Working through how that works and how that might be supported is an active area of work with us and with state government. Uh, New South Wales government, incidentally, is leading the way on this. If you're in an owner's corporation and you're looking for good guidance on how to do it, jump on the New South Wales state government website, have a look at EV ready buildings. They've got an awful lot of really good content there. Oh, that's a good tip. Uh, so that's apartment buildings. I can speak about shopping centres next if you wanted to touch on that too. Yeah, look, well, delivery vehicles are going to be going into shopping centres. So let's assume that they might have to do a quick charge while they're there. So they're yeah. two shopping centres. Absolutely. So in shopping centers, the key role for a shopping center today around EV is actually supporting the person who can't charge their EV at home. So if we look at the dwelling building stock in the country, about 7% of the building stock doesn't have car parking associated with it. Think about terrace houses in the city, older apartment blocks that were built uh, at a time when people could just park on the street. So several hundred thousand dwellings, right, where people live and these people own cars and they can't charge their car conveniently at home because they don't actually have a place off street to park it. We don't want those people pulling extension leads across footpaths, right? That'll cause uh, problems in neighborhoods. That might cause someone to trip over and cop an injury. Those people, however, are going to their local shopping center pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. So the local shopping centers deploying a handful of high power fast charges each where the use case is the person in that neighborhood lobs up to the shopping center once every couple of weeks, plugs in in the 20 minutes or half an hour while they're doing their shopping or getting a haircut or grabbing a cup of coffee, that car is then recharged for a week or two's worth of energy. And then they drive home, make way for the next person. That kind of installation, usually achievable at a shopping center without huge expense, and there's a lot of collaboration going on between the people deploying the charging networks, the shopping center operators, 
and the state and federal government folks who are chipping in for some of the cost of deploying this kit. Uh, around where I live, uh, Mooney Ponds Shopping Centre has a bank of Tesla superchargers in it that are a case in point of this kind of work. Over the other side of Melbourne in Richmond, there's high power chargers in Victoria Garden Shopping Centre. And the same stuff is popping up in other shopping centres all over the country. Raises an interesting point. Um, well, it raises, <laughs> raises several interesting points, but eventually people will be able to to not have to go to shopping centres to charge their vehicles, I, I assume is the is the infrastructure rollout. When I was in London recently, I saw smart poles where there was electric vehicles parked in the street outside terrace houses and they were plugged into a pole recharging. I, I don't know how it worked. I have the photos to show, show it. Have you seen those? What's that about? Is that an exact feasible for Australia to be doing these smart pole charging? Yeah, absolutely. So that concept is uh, typically termed curbside charging. The idea is for a person who, as I said, lives in a dwelling without parking on the property, but who parks in front of their property or near their property. I think you should put smart in front of everything. Just so that- Well, we could put smart in front of everything. <laughs> smart, like, yeah, smart pole. This question of how much of it's going to be smart, right? There's going to be very little of it that's going to be dumb, right? Most of it's going to be smart. If we think about the location. So curbside charging, the idea there is that at the curb, where the vehicle is parking at the curb, it is able to access charging. Uh, the Europeans are well ahead of us on this, partly because they're well ahead of us on EV uptake, but also because their building mix is different to ours. Uh, in Australia, three quarters of the building stock is standalone homes. Uh, that's not the case in most of Europe. Lots more buildings in Europe that people live in that don't have off-street parking, garages, driveways like we do. So they've needed to solve this one sooner. In Australia, the work going on in this area, there's an arena-funded project happening in Sydney, deploying EV charges on power poles. New South Wales state government has a $10 million program aimed at funding exactly the same kind of thing. Uh, that's actually round one, 3 million bucks is open right now. Uh, Victorian government is looking at something similar. There was a, uh, a relatively quiet announcement a week or so back about 100 locations doing it in Victoria and other jurisdictions are looking at it too. So this question of uh, can we take the power poles that run up and down our residential streets in this area and attach EV charges to them to serve the people who are not able to charge off street, that is being looked at in Australia in multiple jurisdictions. It's just early days. All right. Well, that's good to hear. We should take a break. Before we do, a uh, question without notice. Uh, is, are electric vehicles going to lead to flying cars? Are we going to you know, do away with roads and start flying? And I, this is not your area of expertise. I just wonder if you've if it's come across your desk. Yeah, yeah. So um, the possibility of building a vehicle that can move through the air is not new, right? We've had planes, we've had helicopters for a very long time. Anyone who has ever- We've got drones. Oh, we've got drones, yeah. But I, I'm more thinking about the kind of vehicle that might be able to move me or me and my family or me and my stuff, right? A vehicle that's <laughs> going to have a payload of hundreds of kilos, yeah. not a payload of a pizza box or a pair of sneakers that I bought from the local Amazon warehouse. If I'm thinking about a vehicle that is capable of moving several people through the air, and is capable of vertical takeoff and landing, which is what it's going to need to have in an urban environment to replace the car, what you're talking about is a helicopter. Those things are noisy. Anyone who's ever been on the ground next to a helicopter taking off or has been in a helicopter is very, very much aware of that. I think it would be difficult to imagine a future where our urban environment is full of helicopters because people won't put up with the noise. Hmm. Let's take a break and continue to pick this up after the, after the break. No worries. Thank you. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Ross, before the break, we were talking about charges and infrastructure. So uh, two questions I really need to ask. At the moment, my understanding is that Tesla has a 
a dedicated charger. You can't charge an electric vehicle with a Tesla charger. Uh, and I understand that in the States, they're looking at that and saying, hang on, that's not that's not fair fair play. Uh, have you heard anything on that? Are we going to get to a standard charger for every vehicle that you just plug in? Yeah, so Australia's interesting in that regard. We have Tesla chargers that have been deployed by Tesla, but they use the same physical connector as most of the other vehicles in the market. They use the CCS2 type DC connector for charging. Tesla have actually just made the decision in the last week to open up their high power public chargers, 30 odd sites out of the 55, 60 that they run locally to all cars. So you can now at a lot of Tesla high power locations, roll up in a non-Tesla vehicle and use those charging locations. Mm -hmm. uh, Tesla, like several other charging infrastructure providers, is uh, a recipient of government grant money. And in those locations where they're receiving government grant money, those charges will absolutely be open <laughs> to all drivers because there's no way a government's going to fund Tesla to deploy a charging station that only serves Teslas. Yeah. Okay. So that's moving forward. Um, we need to talk about range anxiety. It's the, the common thing about... Uh, of vehicles. Uh, I noticed a, a, a climate change, a climate council report said that there's now 3,600 public charging stations in Australia across about 2,100 locations and that the public infrastructure nationwide continues to be built. Can you address range anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. So range anxiety is the question of will my EV go far enough? Am I going to get stranded? Uh, anyone who is driven in the more remote parts of the country will be familiar with this from driving a petrol car, right? You pay attention to where the next sign to the next service station is if you're driving up around Lake Mungo or Ivanhoe or the back blocks of Queensland because you don't want to run out. It will be inconvenient. In the more urban environments, we are accustomed to petrol stations being ubiquitous. So there's very, very little concern about will I run out of petrol? Because by the time the engine light comes on, you've got 80 or 100 k's worth of driving that you can still do. And you will definitely pass lots and lots of petrol stations in the urban environment before you run out. In the electric car, people worry about this because they don't see that same prevalence of petrol station equivalents, the high power public charging stations, to the same degree. There's not as many places where you can do a high power recharge of an electric car as you can refuel with petrol. And this makes sense, right? Because 99% of the on-road fleet is still petrol and diesel cars. The difference is that the electric vehicle driver starts the day with a full battery. So if you imagine in your petrol car, if you had a petrol ferry that waved a magic wand and filled your tank up every night, on the circumstance of you start with 400 or 500 k's of range, how often would you need to be stopping at a petrol station? Uh, and that's a, a really big mind shift difference from petrol to electric. The other thing I'd observe is that if you are doing those long runs, uh, per that report you mentioned, the infrastructure is being built. So if I take my wife's Polestar and I leave from Melbourne on a drive to Albury, for example, the range in the Polestar is such that it will just get there, right? I'll be running on the electric equivalent of fumes when I arrive, but it'll make the distance. If I'm looking to be sure that I'll have the ability to leave the hotel the next day, then what I'll do is stop for 10 minutes in Euroa at the halfway point between Melbourne and Albury, stop for 10 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, go to the loo, and then keep driving. And that'll make the difference in arriving at Albury with enough juice to keep moving the next day. Obviously, if I'm in Albury, if I'm staying overnight, I'll recharge at the hotel, so the next day I'll be full anyway. You will have to come up with a new terminology from uh, <laughs> driving on fumes. We will need to come up with something new, yeah. The thing is, you mentioned this this idea of smart, and you know, if you you think that the the new this, the new electric vehicles are going to be like an iPad on wheels, they're going to be very smart pieces of mobility rather than a an, an engine uh, in, within a bunch of steel. But you can rethink this a lot. I know that uh, that Tritium, the Australian charging company, was looking at the idea of, and I think they've gone down this path of putting a uh, in the car comes up a, a, a message saying you have got 
two hours worth of charge left in your vehicle. You're on the autobahns in Europe, for example. You've got two hours worth of charge left in your vehicle. The best place to recharge is 130 kilometres down the road at this place. You should be there in you know, 94 minutes. We'll we reserve the charger for you. Would you like a coffee as well while you're, <laughs> yep. while you're charging? We can order a meal. And do this, this very smart kind of communication that we expect in other parts of our, our life, but just not from our cars. Do you see that as being the, the smart way of the future? The car's telling us what to do rather than we, we, we're doing it the other way. So I'm going to go with that. As the driver, I'm going to remain in charge, right? I'll have the executive call on, am I stopping at this place or that place? Am I having a meal or a coffee? I'm not going to let the coffee just, the car decide You're what the, kind of coffee I like. But I think that piece around navigation dog of the car. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in charge of the car, not the other way around. But in terms of the car supporting the driver, the car making the whole experience easier, that technology layer of setting the navigation in your car, your car helping you work out which roads to take, your car presenting an alternate route if there's traffic. We're all accustomed to that already. That exists in petrol cars yeah, today. You yeah. can do that with your with your phone. The new bit of identifying which charging stations will meet your needs, which ones are available, what your battery capacity state will be when you arrive, or if you choose to skip it, what it'll be when you get to destination. That's all getting built into the cars already. So again, if you're interested in experiencing what that's like, grab yourself a late model electric car and take it for a test drive. Experience it, right? Tell it to take you somewhere 500 kilometers away and look at what it shows you. Yeah, my mate Steve. Hello, Steve. Uh, he calls the navigation aid bitch and Betty because, you know, <laughs> Betty's always telling him to turn left in 200 meters and he's yelling at the car, shut up. Don't tell me what to do. He's an alpha male. Yeah, all I was going to say there is different people prefer different levels of technology. So some people prefer a manual transmission car. Some people prefer uh, full up navigation and the car does everything for them. How much of that technology you wish to engage with as a driver is partly your choice. Um, I personally yeah. like using cruise control. I don't really like it when the car fights me for control on lane keeping. Uh, these things are usually a question of what setting the driver chooses to put into the car. I actually hired a, a lane-keeping car when I was in uh, somewhere recently, Sydney maybe, uh, and it kept telling me I was wandering off the lane. I kept saying, no, I'm not. What are you doing? I was quite. I was, I was driving from Sydney to Newcastle, that's right, and it kept saying, oh, you're getting close to the lane. I'm saying, no, I'm not going around this bend at the, you know, within the lane. It was, uh, again, it was telling me what to do. But in terms of smart, smart, thinking there was this sort of story that came out it probably will never happen but they were sort of saying there's there's something like you know eighty thousand cars parked outside the pentagon every day uh, i don't know i made that number up uh, and what would be possible is for those eighty thousand cars to pull up fully charged and plug in and the pentagon sucks the power out of the out of the cars saying we'll use that to drive the pentagon but we know you need about 12 percent to get home so we'll leave 16 percent in your car and if you suddenly get told you to go and pick up the kids because something's happened you just dial into your car and say give me 20 i need i need a bit more uh, but and there's this whole smart of re, smart thinking of going of of renewable energy now that would be expensive to set up it won't happen but it just shows the way that we could be thinking in the future so I think that concept of the energy in the vehicle coming out, not as traction power to drive the vehicle around, but as electricity to be fed into the energy system for some other use case. That whole concept is typically termed vehicle to grid, uh, and it is very, very much on the way. Uh, we at the EVC are heavily oh, involved. Oh, it's, it's got a term. It does have a term. It doesn't have smart in the term, but it does have a term. It's called vehicle to grid. So the idea there is that the punter who owns the EV gets home after work or from having picked up the kids at school, plugs their car in. That time at which they're plugging it in is peak time in the energy system. It is a time when electricity is more valuable than it is at other times of day because it's when maximum demand exists on the network and it's when the wholesale price of electricity is high. If the car is able to export electricity at that time, right? So not drained all the way, drop it from maybe 80% state of charge to perhaps 50% state of charge. You're still leaving a couple of hundred Ks of range in the car, but you draw down some of the battery into the energy system. The homeowner, the driver is paid well for that. So like a feed-in tariff for solar, but at a higher rate to recognize how much more that electricity is worth at that time. 
then the battery sits idle for a couple of hours and at midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning, it starts recharging. Meaning that by the time you get to the next day, the battery is fully recharged. The driver still has that experience of a full tank in the morning, but they have been paid well for exporting it when the electricity is expensive and they have bought that electricity back when it's cheap without actually having done anything other than plug it in when they get home. That's, that's the future we're working to there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. One of the issues that we hear all the time is that electric vehicles are a false, a false argument because it takes so much critical minerals to build them. Um, they use electricity generated by coal. Um, that it, you know, the, the the people who are pushing back against the use of EVs are, are sort of putting this argument up that it's false. Do you want to address that? Yeah, oh, look, that's a, a common narrative that we've heard many times. We've actually got a life cycle emissions calculator on our website that is specifically aimed at addressing that question. Uh, the short version is if you build an electric car by comparison to a petrol or diesel car, there's more materials in it. There's more stuff in it because you need that battery that weighs a couple hundred kilos in order to do the job. So at time of construction, there's embodied energy in the vehicle, which is likely higher for an electric car by comparison to a petrol car. Over its life cycle, though, the electric car runs on electricity rather than oil that you need to extract from the ground. So there's a break even point that happens where the total emissions over the life cycle of the vehicle are less for an electric car than a petrol or diesel car. The nature of the electricity that you feed it changes where that breakpoint is. So if you're running on a coal-fired grid, the electric car is still cleaner over life cycle than the petrol or diesel car in terms of CO2. And of course, it avoids the emissions of the particulates and the combustion in the urban environment. So it's cleaner where you live as well as being cleaner in CO2 terms. If you feed the electric vehicle with renewable energy though, that breakpoint is much, much sooner which is why we recommend to people where they can feed your EV with renewable energy. That is, after all, the whole goal of this thing. The other thing that I'm always reminded of is that all of those things, uh, are, you know, I think that's answered it very well. The bit that's not answered is that if you look at an internal combustion engine, it is a highly inefficient engine. It uh, requires on 6,000 bunk force explosions every, every minute, uh, to drive a, a, a crankshaft, which is quite inefficient, which drives gears, which drives this plate, which then drives a drive shaft, goes into more gears, and there's a loss of energy all the way along. Uh, whereas my understanding is that the fuel, uh, the, the energy efficiency of an EV is, you know, direct to wheel almost, and, and also when it stops, it doesn't doesn't keep using energy. That efficiency is what's fundamentally behind the fuel cost being lower. So when you're paying 14 or $15 per 100 kilometers for fuel, what you are paying for there is the inefficiency of that system. The reason that we can do off-peak electricity at $1 or $2 per 100 kilometers for fuel is because it is a more efficient way to turn one form of energy into another. Yeah. For mine, as a business person, this is just a, an amazing option and I, I hope we start seeing more EVs in Australia so that the fleets can start picking up EVs and seeing the advantage of them. Are we going to see more, more, uh, more options in Australia soon? Absolutely. And I think I touched already on fuel efficiency standards. That's a key reform to deliver us not just more quantity of the vehicles that we already have, but also wider range of vehicles in order to address a wider range of use cases. Uh, we're very much expecting to see electric utes make their appearance in Australia in numbers in the next few years. Electric delivery vehicles, electric trucks, we already have. Electric buses are scaling out at a rate of knots. Uh, we're going to see more vehicles of wider numbers of types from more marks in Australia over the next few years. It's going to keep ramping up. And you now the next question. The next question is, are we going to make electric vehicles in Australia? Is there going to be electric vehicle manufacturing here? Would love to see that, right? So manufacturing industry in this country, we have historically made cars in this country. We've got people who know how to make cars in this country. That would be great to see. Uh, were we to end up making electric cars in Australia, that would likely bring with it more opportunity upstream in the supply chain. So the countries that are making the electric cars are also likely to be the ones that are making the batteries that go in those cars. If we think about this at a strategic level for our country, 
we are the world's number one exporter of coal and gas right at this point in history. Uh, a significant chunk of our international trade is on those two commodities. There is a future coming where the rest of the world doesn't necessarily want to buy those things from us because just like us, they are decarbonizing their economies. As a country, we need to figure out what we're going to sell the rest of the world instead. Uh, and if that involves more manufacturing, as a father of some kids who are going to need to work in future, it'd be good to see us do more manufacturing. Hmm. Where do you think we'll be in five years? My, my last question, where will, the EV, where will the EV in Australia be in five? So three years ago, we were at 1% near enough of new vehicles sold being EVs, then 2%, then 4%, and we're now up to about 8.5%. In five years' time, it is plausible that we will be close to, if not having achieved, 30, 40, 50% of new vehicles sold being EVs. Uh, you can already ask a room full of people, did you see an electric vehicle on the road this week? And the answer will be, yes, I did, right? Because they're everywhere. The question will be, how many of them and where are they turning up? The other thing that will be interesting is in those corporate environments and in those uh, newer apartment complexes that are populated by a younger vehicle fleet than the national average. So if I think about an apartment complex or a government fleet, which is turning its cars over every three or four years, in five, six years time, the car park in that building is going to be dominated by EVs. And so serving yeah. those EVs in that environment is going to be necessary in the relatively near term. Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? It's going to happen fast. James Ward from uh, Drive Magazine wrote an article recently that said that uh, the tipping point is uh, traditionally 7.2%. If you get 7.2% of the market, well, then you've tipped over to the new style of product. Uh, and you said, I think we're at 8%. So we're past the tipping point where we're now going to see EVs be adopted rapidly as long as we can get stock. That's right. The only thing that is slowing us down right at this point in time, or I should say the key limiting factor at this point in time is supply. Uh, on the energy and infrastructure side, we're working pretty hard to make sure that the energy side doesn't become the limiting factor. Uh, what we're after is any Australian who wants to buy an EV can, because we know the demand's there. Yeah, yeah. It's been a great chat. Thank you so much. It's been good having you on the on the program. Is there something that you would recommend listeners do to follow this story? Absolutely. If you have not already taken an EV for a test drive, if you don't own an EV yet, go take one for a spin. That's the call to action. Well done. Good on you. Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening and thanks for your feedback. I love hearing your thoughts and comments, so please keep them coming. And if you have any uh, feedback or thoughts on today's interview with Ross or ideas to the show, or just want to give me some personal feedback, uh, hit me up at james.scotland at aigroup.com.au. That's uh, one T, james.scotland um, at aigroup.com.au. Or head over to my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.